the ending of our second full day and night of practice. For most of us, it's quite challenging. In stopping, interrupting our normal, everyday activity, persona, responsibilities, duties. Then we're as a dear friend of ours, Ajahn Sajito, used to say, we're eyeball to eyeball with our karma, with what we have created. In ancient times, the, the principle of the Sabbath, of the stopping, the rhythmic stopping, six days of activity, then stopping to see what has been created. For example, the Judeo-Christian framework in the Buddhist, in the, uh, the, the Hindu framework, the observance days, on the phases of the moon, the the waxing moon, the, the, the half moon, the full moon, the waning half moon, the new moon. That's about once a week. To pause and reflect, stop, see what has been created, to sense uh, what is... Uh, unskillful and to let that go, to remember, reconnect with what is skillful and to cultivate that, deepen that. So at the end of uh, two full days and, and nights of practice, we a lot of undigested restlessness, undigested exhaustion that we couldn't afford, not judging this, but maybe we just couldn't afford to be exhausted because of urgent duties and responsibilities that many of us hold and face. So we just, extra cup of coffee (laughs) or whatever is needed to do that, but there's some fatigue, exhaustion that hasn't really been fully recognized, absorbed, honored, undigested desire that's always powered by the next thing, the next thing, that's quite disembodied, really, that's moving us ahead, has energy in it, it's powerful. We're not judging this, but it's powerful. But when one stops... This is why the template, the limitation, the framework is so important. It's the framework that we consciously surrender to that allows these karmic streams, these tendencies, these habits to be revealed. 
So when the framework, for example, of the silence, these tendencies scream up in the mind. The framework of the sitting period, not so easy just to change the channel. The walking period, the limitation of the retreat center, so it might think like, seem like things are just really getting worse, but really the good news is things are becoming apparent. We can't be free from what we don't see. Uh, some one great teacher said, you know, even realizing you're caught up in something is the first important step to freedom. It's the honest acknowledgement, hey, I'm bound up here. in the old days, theoretically, I'm not sure, but the, the sacred ground, the place of, of uh, where the seeker goes for revelation is literally a template, a, a sema, a sacred boundary that one walks into and then surrenders, consciously surrenders to that limitation. Excited, I am following in the footsteps the great awakened ones of old, and here I am. (sighs) And look at the light, the shimmering light on the dewdrops, like jewels. Hour later, two hours later, where are the jewels? It's getting hot, it's getting cold. Thinking of why is it taking so long? But the, if we stay with the limitation, we have the chance to hear that well up, which seems so much like me. Maybe there's another sacred place around here that's better than this one. <laughs> have you noticed? It's pretty crowded in here. And you know, uh, and that kitty saw Tanissa and, and Dara, they're all right, but you know, they're still on the path. We might could find some real enlightened ones out there somewhere. Just notice the mind, but if we can stay with it, these voices that are so compelling, so believable, we hang in there, we have the chance to see them well up and subside. So ironically, the secret of limitation is that if we hang in there consciously, so we're consciously allowing resistance to present itself. There's a possibility of then being liberated from wrong understandings, wrong ways of seeing. Religio, the word religion, meant that. It meant to bind, religere, bind back together. What was split, conscious undertaking of training, of practice, and the ultimate originally, in terms of the profound notion of the word, was religious practice was meant to liberate us from birth and death. It's, it's this sacred principle of the cross and the crucifixion, that opening up to limitation can present something that can be a revelation of transformation by staying with.
Now, the very good question was asked today, yeah, but is the, you know, this resistance, when is it good, when is it not good? You know, yes, it's a personal decision. But, you know, we're, you know, what are we asking people to do? Are we asking people to hit each other? Asking people to lie? Asking anyone to harm? Giving permission for people to rest if they need to? Getting people to do something outrageous to listen in and honor our humanity. To train ourselves to honor and receive the embodied state that is blessed by every in-breath and out-breath. To get a feeling for that miracle. When we start to look at what we're actually doing in a world where a lot of pleasure burns up a lot of resources, it take away from somebody else. It takes a lot of fancy equipment. Yes, there is some resources here and some fancy equipment that helps us, but the principle we're learning, very green, the principle of learning to access a well-being that doesn't depend on the light just a certain way, that doesn't depend on the temperature just a certain way, It doesn't depend on anything in just a certain way. A well-being that emerges when we let go of having to do this, having to do that, and allow our attention to withdraw and honor this much, this embodied circumstance. The spraying out, the refraction, the dispersal of all our energy We're learning, and it's challenging, learning to turn that around. And that, all that energy, learning how to relax enough to allow that energy to permeate us. And then it'll run into the blocks in the energetic system to relax enough to allow it to flush out and fill us up. It's challenging. And in withdrawing, the Buddha described it as if you take a fish out of water, where it's normally, it'll flop around. Our habitual way of being, this undigested, restless, or getting excited about the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, that's all right. But that kind of mind doesn't cut deep into the moment. It's always becoming to the next thing. And... And to the extent that we get weary, exhausted of always just wanting the next thing, when there's some part of us that yearns for, feels thirsty to be, to be here more deeply, when there's that sense of of something that's been ignored, then one comes to a place like this. But in in surrendering to the template, to the limitation of the sitting, the walking, the silence, the like that fish flopping, there can be real, real resistance. But I, I encourage us, yes, to be with it gently and adjust our response. But I encourage us to to trust, at least to remember, that we're not asking anyone to harm anybody. 
that this resistance is for the sake of liberating ourselves from thieves. Did Kitty Saul just lose the plot there? <laughs> when I, I was a little diversion here. When I was a, I was a Rhodes Scholar. I've been a wrestling champion. Rhodes Scholar from Princeton. And my parents couldn't believe it. Oh, oh, I couldn't believe it. I wasn't even going to apply. And then the university sent me a letter and said, yeah, your grades are good. You should apply. And I ended up, it's a whole other story, but winning this thing unexpectedly. And then I, I, I was always going to the next thing, the next tournament, the next grade. Went off to Oxford, and I was so weary. I was 24 and fell to 104. And I used to find myself sitting in, in churches. Didn't want to hear any sermons. Here I am giving one. <laughs> But I, I grew up in the Bible Belt where there was just finger-wagging telling us, you know, you're going to hell if you don't do this, if you don't do that. And Dad being New York Jewish and Mom a Southern Baptist. <laughs> you know, we were in trouble. <laughs> but the quiet of these ancient churches, it just I knew there was something that I had been missing. And all the striving was good. It wasn't that it was bad. There was something missing that I knew I was touching into when I listened, and I didn't have any real teachers. But I was tired. I was weary. And just the next award just didn't do it. I knew that, you know, Mom had taken all the pictures, all the trophies, and, you know, our parents were just rooting for us. You know, I could see all that stuff. Yeah, I'm pretty good. But then my mind was a mess. I'd have to go open the scrapbook to kind of feel good. So, but I was sensing this quiet. And when I heard that there was a wise being in the forest of Thailand and he had a few Westerners and that you could learn how to, to access peace. So I was excited I was going to go off. And when I told my parents, they were... They weren't thrilled. My dad said, son, you'll get sick. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> anyway, I went out there, and, I, and it, was, it was amazing to meet Ajahn Chah and, and to have permission to be. And yeah, I had a lot of fish-flopping stuff going on and the withdrawal symptoms. But part of me knew I'm just learning how to come back to, to being able to stand and breathe, to sit, to enjoy doing the simplest things. It's not just chewing up the world, touching the world lightly. And when my parents, you know, those were the days, this was back in 1976, you know, they were cults, they were, not long after that, you know, there was the Jonestown, all these people committed suicide in the name of liberation. My parents were worried. So, and believe me, for mom to fly out to the forest in northeast Thailand was not her. 
ideal place for a holiday. But they were so committed to their children that, you know, they said, we've got to go out and see what's happened to Randy. <laughs> so they flew out there and, and ended up, and my mom was terrified about all these things in the forest, and, you know, but they're children, so, you know, they just, they got to meet Ajahn Chah, and I'm getting to the thieves. <laughs> you thought I forgot about that. Uh, and then, and, you know, meanwhile, we've got Vietnam was a mess. It just, you know, kind of was a catastrophe. There was Laos, which was a catastrophe. And then there was rumors coming out of Cambodia of the killing fields. And our little monastery was right near the border of Laos and Cambodia. So, and, you know, so my dad is out there and he's talking to Ajahn Chah. And, you know, they can see this monastery and all these shaved heads in the forests and creatures and and then my dad asked, asked this question, really sincere. He said, but I don't know if he called him Mr. Cha. <laughs> the Agan Cha. He didn't get the words quite right. But my dad was asking a tough question. What about these communist guerrillas? What about the dangers? And, uh, you know, Ajahn Cha, yes, yes. He says, you know, the real terrorists, the real guerrillas. And this is where the thieves came in. That's the word the Buddha used. The thieves that will rob us. Rob us of well-being. These aren't, the most dangerous ones aren't out there. The most dangerous ones are in here. The always wanting more. Just being fired by the next one. The next, the next. The aversion that's, ne- that's always feeling I won't be at ease and happy till I get rid of this and rid of that. This grasping and rejecting. These are these true terrorists, true guerrillas, the real thieves that rob us. And rob us of our crown jewels, rob us of our birthright, rob us of our real treasures. Because the wise ones know we have a treasure in us. And that's been the most, though I have plenty of work to do, believe me. But the most amazing treasure that I have a sense for now is that all this striving for what's really good, for success, for happiness, It's right here. As I started the first night, the core of every moment has this original brightness, this luminosity, this serenity that we miss when we're so busy getting somewhere else. This struggle, it's not for naught, it's not wasted. Hang in there, really. We're laying a foundation. Be patient, long-range patience. For the rest of our life, if little by little we learn, just in moments, to ground ourselves. 
Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? Make up your mind, but to learn, even before we might have to speak, if we have to walk across the room, to just appreciate, orient ourselves to the feet touching the floor. So that we're contacting something that is. We notice that impression dissolve. The next footstep, and notice it dissolve taking a few breaths where we're actually in touch with, we're training ourselves to actually be here for the actuality of breathing in and breathing out. That from that platform, that refuge of Buddha Dhamma, of being aware of how things are, action from that place is very different if little by little we train ourselves in learning how to relax, learning how to be here, learning how to cultivate what we're calling samadhi, which Tanisra pointed out, according to the great forest master Ajahn Lee, is tough. It's like building a bridge in that middle pillar, that column to sink it through the fast-flowing current is tough. but to cross over from the dangerous bank to the safe bank. It's important. This chitta kagata, this samadhi is chitta, it's the heart, eka, becomes unified. Just to repeat, these different dimensions of our being, the thinking dimension, it's wondering, should I do this, should I do that? The physical dimension, our body, forms, and this heart that likes and it doesn't like and it discouraged and excited and it knows. It's sensitive, it's aware. That the, the training of samadhi is learning to allow these dimensions of our being to come together so that they're refreshed, so that they're renewed and recognized again the fact that though they sound different, they're part of one suchness. There's power. When we're disjointed, scattered, our energies sprayed, we might think we're contemplating, but we're just thinking in circles. What about this and what about that? And that might be better. And it's all right. But sometimes we're just thinking rather than penetrating into. When the thinking mind is humbled enough and realizes it can't itself arrive at the absolute security. Because notice that every thought is just a bubble. It's there and it's gone. It's there and it's gone. Yet our thoughts don't know themselves and they'll convince us that this is the truth and that's the truth and we're right and you're horrible. In the samadhi practice, a thought is reminding us. It's turning the attention to the body. The heart then receives it. So the thinking mind, the body, and the heart of awareness are converging. 
And like that magnifying glass that takes the rays of the sun and focuses it, there's that power. The power of our whole being coming together. When we get skilled at it, we can learn, if little by little practice, we can learn to access what the Buddha called a pleasant abiding. Being at ease here and now. A true holiday, wherever we happen to be. What a blessing. Thinking we need fancy gadgets and this and that and more and more and more to be able to learn. Do I have enough food? Yes, food's important. Just enough. Just a shelter for the night. What the Buddha called requisites for his monks and nuns. Simple clothing. We don't actually need that much. But we can create simple medicines. But we can create all this agony and this and that. But what we don't have, what we have to have, But if we really learn how to enjoy simplicity, little by little we deepen that. That's an incredible blessing. And most powerfully, when our mind is really composed, when we're really present, A mind in samadhi, a gathered mind, the Buddha said, will see things the way they actually are. Like a cast iron stove that's been heated up. It's hot for hours. If a drop of water drops on it, another drop of water. so obvious. The water's there, it's gone. It's empty. When our mind is gathered and a thought comes and telling us, oh, you're a hopeless case, Kitty Sorrow. Kitty Sorrow, you are the avatar of the age. (laughs) It's too bad Tanisra hasn't noticed it yet. She'll get there. She'll come around. (laughs) When the mind is composed, it will see. And these things that can tangle us up like you won't believe. The doubts and the worries or the... Or the wanting, if I only had one of those, it's like the child, oh, mommy, mommy, if you give me this, I'll never, I promise you, never, ever, 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 ever ask you for anything ever again. (sighs) When the heart's composed, we'll see that's a fever. And yet it feels pleasant when when our samadhi's not really there, just wanting to get to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. is a pleasure in it, but we won't notice the fever never lets us rest. So in stopping that we are, all this stuff, this agitation, heaviness, doubts, all coming out of the woodwork, it's good. It can be revealed. 
and we will investigate and look at it in the coming days, but we're building a foundation of some measure of steadiness. Don't undervalue even one mindful step. As our dear friend Godwin Samarowaratana would say, who's passed over now, but he would say, give yourself a pat on the back. Give yourself a plus. We can be, oh God, I, I, was, I was sleeping. We notice all the flaws and what we haven't done, but did we have a mindful step? Did we have one mindful in-breath? Keep beginning again and beginning again and encourage yourself. Remind ourselves that yes, like that fish being drawn out of the water of all its conditioned habits, it will flop around. And it feels like we're dying. But there's a resurrection. There's a, uh, we might not know it, but there's a, a coming into the possibility of being here. So the Buddha encouraged just use a long breath if you're lost, a deep in-breath, a deep out-breath, have a moment of presence. Keep encouraging, encouraging, letting go and returning. And then be, let the, the breathing settle. He gave sequential teachings, maybe at the nostrils. And then it's more like a a post, a gate on the beach where the waves come in, the waves go out. Our, our being with is steady somewhere like at the nostrils and we're being with an in-breath, an out-breath. We're just being with that short breath, the standing breath, the, that aspect of the breath, that tingle, that coolness, that warmth. Learning how to just be with something. In this case, part of our being, an important part of our being. Steady, steady, losing it steady, directing the attention, receiving it. And as Tanisha was, and the Buddha encourages pity, meaning be filled with it. Remember, if we're just trying to get to bliss, that's very narrow and pointed. All this, because we're withdrawing, that energy is coming back here, we have to give a container for it to build up in. So we need to welcome it and be filled by it, including the painful sensations. We just think, oh, no, 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 I want the good ones. Where's bliss? My hair hasn't stood up on end. I haven't got those goosebumps. It'll come. Like a holding a baby, the difficult, the fatigue, the agitation, be filled with that. Have moments of enjoying just that. It's a sober sensation. It's good. Being filled. It's like that. One of our friends described it as a boat on the beach. The tide's lifting it. It's still in the sand, lifting it lifting it until it's lifted free. The energy that fills us up takes time and these first days are, are, are little by little allowing this digestion, all this exhaustion, agitation. 
So savoring even the difficult feelings, beginning again, beginning again. And this next jhana factor, this next support for samadhi is sukha, very important one. It means, it's translated as happiness, but the essence of it is relax. Pitti sukha balance each other. The pity, the being filled, is being interested. Interested. Cultivate an interest in, in our life force, in our energetics. Interest in learning over, over the next five years, ten years, fifteen years, however long we have. Learning how to access a measure of well-being in a way that doesn't harm anybody. So we're getting interested that interest, that learning to enjoy. The balance of that is sukha. The next one is a letting go, a being satisfied, a relaxing. <coughs> a relaxing. On the out-breath, relaxing. Samadhi really gets deeper when we relax. We're in a place, the short breath. Then the Buddha encouraged long breath, short breath, and then this next step, train yourself to be sensitive to the whole body as you breathe in, to the whole body. So samadhi at one little place is fine, it's good, it's something, but it'll be very fragile. If our intention little by little learns to explore and feel into the body, then we allow the blessing of this extra energy, we allow it to suffuse, permeate, bless the whole body and the unifying energy of mind, heart, body. Refresh and bless the whole body. Then when our whole body through relaxation learns how to hold a charge, of well-being, it's more durable. Criticism, praise, things not going quite so well. We have more stability when our presence is grounded. That's why the walking meditation too, the Buddha says, very important. Some people don't like walking. Oh, it's more refined sitting. Yes, it's good. But when in walking when they're seeing and hearing and all this different stuff, when we're learning to still be in touch with that, but be composed. Just keep letting things come and go and be composed. The Buddha talked like that's a jhana, that's a state of poise that's more durable. It will last longer. So I just encourage us to be really, really patient. So practicing from periods of time as one's with the breath and allowing the lens of our awareness to spread out, include the head, the shoulders, the whole body as we breathe in and out. Then if it's getting too fuzzy, we can keep returning to a certain place where, where we can get sharp. But this is allowing the blessing power of this to... I speak from, this has been important to me. I I did get sick in Thailand. I almost died of typhoid. I had um, 
diarrhea for six months, and I got bit by something and started urinating blood. Then I got typhoid fever, and then I was a basket case for about three years I had to lie down. About ten years I was really sick. And, um, and sometimes even just to try to have a conversation was exhausting. So training in gathering energy trying to figure things out, but just having time of just going to sensation and allowing the energy to well up again. Very important. My favorite posture was lying down. Good meditation posture. Because relaxation is very easy to develop when you lie down. But easy to go to sleep. So you have to develop that subtle effort to deeply relax, but still... It's a good posture. So when you're tired and need to lie down, that's not like you're just bailing out. Say, kitty sorrow, I'm doing the practice. Good. (laughs) Do the practice. Really practice relaxing on the out-breath, letting yourself be held up by the floor, by the bed. Stead in anywhere that's not well, that's exhausted, that's asking for attention. Breathe in as we hold that. Breathe out as we relax and allow those sensations to mingle. The way we feel the body is the breath body. A mechanical breath is one dimension of the breath, in, out. That's an aspect. But there's a deeper dimension. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm independent. I don't need to do that. I'm not, see, I'm not breathing. I don't know what he's talking about. No, I'm not breathing. Still, I'm not breathing in, but I notice now there's this really uncomfortable feeling. It's gotten very uncomfortable. Maybe I'm not that independent. Uh oh. Now, if I breathe in, what's that flush? I can feel it in my fingers, toes, legs, whole body. It's the subtle breath, the vitality, the chi, the prana. The functional breath, the mechanical breath, an aspect, yes, we can... But we're also, when we're being with the breathing, noticing the energy that expresses itself or that manifests to us to us in the way that we feel the body. The body we're working with in meditation is not what we take pictures of, what shows up in the photographs, whether we like the way we look or don't like the way we look. It's the way we feel the body. So wherever we access that feeling, steadying the attention on that, and then in time, widening that so that that can bless. The unifying principle is awareness. So that the bits that are too dense, the bits that are too energized, the ones that are too sluggish, when awareness keeps exploring, feeling into, and holding, those get homogenized, blended out. And ekagata, the fifth jhana factor, starts to appear, the unified. 
the, the beach is a good uh, when Tanishanarj is blown out with our hermitage in the mountains and we can't take any more. We go on a holiday down to the beach north of Durban. And I'm Shloti and I'm Shlanga and these different uh, beaches. And sometimes if there's been a lot of partying on the beach uh, before people driving their vehicles out there, it'll be all dug up and even though you're not supposed to do it. Lots of tracks. But if you notice the, the tide as it comes in and out. In and out. And in and out. And in and out, smoothing. And this is that next stage of practice. Long breath, short breath, being aware of the whole body and then tranquilizing the body just like that tide smooths it. And what is made up of hundreds, of thousands, of millions, of billions of grains of sand. When the beach is smooth, it's unified, it's one, it's... And the body, mind is just like that. All these different bits and pieces. But if we're patient, returning, returning, patiently, making peace with, hanging in to honoring this undigested resistance, then the willful effort to return little by little lessens and it finds its own momentum. Being with the in and the out, letting the out breath smooth us, relax us, just like that beach and all those tracks, all those patterns give rise to a beautiful expanse that's soothing to the heart, soothing to the body. The famous analogy that the Buddha gave, which is uh, very helpful to keep returning to for this first level of peace that we've been practicing. That includes thought to remind us, but thought that's in service, like Bhutto or in, out. Thought that's not getting in the way. That includes that rapture, that being filled. That includes that happiness which is relaxed. That includes that unification. This is the image. There's the case where a seeker, quite secluded, from sensuality. That's us. We don't have a big movie theater. Don't have this is the movie theater. We're the movie theater. We're not going just over here, over there. We're coming to this body mind. Secluded from sensuality. Secluded from unskillful qualities. Enters and remains in this first level of peace, what's called the first jhana. 
rapture, that's pity, sukha, or pleasure, or ease, born of seclusion, accompanied by this directed thought, we've been practicing that, and the receptive thought, what's called here evaluation. The seeker permeates, pervades, suffuses, and fills this very body with that rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. There is nothing of the entire body unpervaded by this rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Just as, and this is the image, which can help us. It can be an image that can help us for the rest of our life. certainly helps me. Just as a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that this ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, this seeker permeates this very body with that fullness and ease born of this withdrawal, this seclusion, this very body. There's nothing of this entire body that's unpervaded by that fullness and ease born of this withdrawal. This is the first development of that noble right samadhi. That's the direction we're going in through patiently, patiently. One breath, long, short, and then just as we did in the Qigong, from time to time, encourage your awareness to open up and hold the whole body so that little by little this energy can circulate. The image, in the old days, you'd go get a bath, didn't have just hot water, Someone would heat a lot of hot water, the bath man. And then he would prepare the crystals or the, what's called the powder that would have maybe oils and things, cleansing agents in there. It would be dry, flaky, different pieces, sprinkled with water. And the sprinkling, then the hands would knead it within this brass basin, kneading, kneading. And as you knead it, they're noticing the little bits Hard bits, sprinkle that with water. Keep kneading until it's permeated, suffused, and the consistency then is fragrant and unified. That's an image for, for a skill that little by little in the course of our life we can do. The brass basin, the lovely golden basin, is our mind. That's the container. The powder is this body. Shoulder over here, elbow over there, aching back, back there, headache up here. All these different bits and pieces. Sprinkling with water. That's the moment of noticing. Moments of noticing. Moments of mindfully being with the in-breath, out-breath. The kneading is this rhythmic being with the breath. Being in and then out, relaxing, like that tide, in and out, smoothing the sand. That's the hands kneading. The bowl is this golden heart of ours. 
powder that seems separate as the body, sprinkling attention. And then as attention starts to feel in to this body, little by little, there's transformation, just as that powder little by little becomes something different. It foams. It still has substance and fragrance. In the same way we bathe in awareness. Even if you're not very good at it, don't worry. Just even moments, moments will develop some steadiness. And in the course of the rest of our life, if we get a little, a little, a little better at it, that is such a skill to have so that we're not robbed all the time by these thieves that are telling us the only real happiness is out there somewhere. And then the little bit of composure that we develop, which we will in the next few days, start to turn that, not only to enjoy whatever ease we can enjoy, but to look into the nature. These drops of, like water on the hot stove, And when we look at our thoughts and worries and doubts that are creating this sense of over here, there, up, down, all over the place, they'll reveal themselves so clearly as ephemeral, not belonging to us. And we'll have moments of realizing where we've always already been. Just right here, this lovely luminous heart that's been fine, always. So I'd like to congratulate everyone for not having run away, (laughs) hanging in, and that I deeply, deeply trust that what we're doing is not easy work, but it's for the welfare of all beings, for the survival of our planet as well, because it will not harm anyone, won't use up anything extra. So thank you for your consideration this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.